Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. Today we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. So grab your Bible, sit back, and open your hearts and minds as we study the Word of God together. Recently, we've been diving into the book of Philippians, and today we find ourselves in chapter 2, verse 9. So you can turn there in your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. We'll be looking at uh, verses 9 through 11 today. In Philippians 2, 9, we find ourselves in the middle of a great poem or hymn about the incarnation of Christ, about how Christ as God humbled himself and became a man. Paul's purpose in discussing this is that we would follow in Christ's humility, that we would have the same attitude, the same mindset as Christ as we live our lives. Paul expresses this in verse 5 of this chapter. Here's what he says, quote, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, unquote. And then he goes into this hymn of his. In the first half of the hymn, Paul spoke about Christ's humility, as we said. Starting in verse 9, Paul speaks of the consequences of that humility. Let's read the entire hymn for context, uh, and then we'll dive into the passage starting in verse 9. We'll be reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Quote, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." That's a beautiful passage and a significant passage of Scripture. As we talked about last time, this passage is significant because it speaks directly of Christ's pre-existence and his deity. Christ existed as the Son of God before he began his mission on earth and became a man. And in order to serve man, in order to carry out his mission of dying for our sins, Christ as God had to humble himself more than any being in heaven or earth has ever humbled themselves. Going from being God to being a man. And then, as Paul points out, even as a man he humbled himself, choosing not to come here as a king or emperor or or any other kind of ruler, but as a servant of man. An, an itinerant preacher speaking the truth of God and ministering to people's needs. This is the attitude that we should have, as Paul said in verse 5. The first half of the hymn, which concludes with verse 8, leaves Christ at the lowest possible place, experiencing death on the cross. But things change in verse 9 
and there's a complete reversal. In verse 9, Paul lets us know that Christ's humbling of himself did not go unrewarded. Christ's humility would lead to his exaltation, as Paul says in verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name. Unquote. The therefore implies that the exaltation is a direct result of Christ's humility. Christ was exalted precisely because he humbled himself. And indeed, it's a principle taught in the Bible that God honors humility. Christ himself taught this. Uh, let's look at Matthew 18, verses 2 through 4. Quote, he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Unquote. And also Christ taught this in Matthew chapter 23, verses 11 and 12. Here's what he said, quote, The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Unquote. Peter teaches essentially the same thing um, in a few verses that we've looked at before. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Quote, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time." Unquote. So it's a common principle, a frequent teaching in the Bible that the consequence of humility will be that God lifts you up. Note that in the passage from 1 Peter, it is God who will lift us up, God who will exalt us. Thus, here, back in Philippians, Paul writes, Therefore God exalted him. The hymn, H-Y-M-N, is quite interesting in, in that the first half, which describes the humbling of Christ, depicts the actions of Christ. And then the second half of the poem or the hymn, depicts the actions of God, who affects the exaltation of Christ. So we have in verse 7, Paul says, quote, Christ made himself nothing. Christ took the nature of a servant. And then in verse 8, uh, we have Christ humbling himself and becoming obedient to death. So Christ is doing all those things things change in verse 9. Beginning in verse 9, it's God the Father who is the one who acts. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name." Unquote. And this, of course, agrees with Peter's statement in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Unquote. So this is a principle that we should all take to heart. It is God who will lift us up. It is God who will affect the exaltation, which is a consequence to our humility. So it's not like, well, this morning I'll act humbly towards my wife so that this afternoon I can lord it over her as a reward for my being humble this morning. No, 
and it's not like, well, this week I'll act humbly so that next week I can exalt myself by telling people how humble I was. You know? No, we aren't the ones who are going to exalt ourselves. Any honor ex- and exaltation that we get will come from God. Our job is to remain humble ever and always. Paul states that, quote, God exalted Jesus to the highest place, unquote. Jesus himself spoke of this as he gave his disciples the Great Commission. Let's read Matthew 28, verse 18. Quote, then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, unquote. So Christ is exalted and given all authority in the universe. Also, his name is exalted, as Paul states next. Paul states this uh, at the end of verse 9, quote, And, you know, God gave him the name that is above every name, unquote. There is something unique in the world about the very name of Jesus. And we've all seen this, I think. First, and this is something we have all noticed, I I think, and it's quite unfortunate, there's no other name which is cursed more than the name of Jesus. You see it all all the time, all day long. I I see it in my workplace. Jesus this, Christ that, Jesus Christ. You know, people, you know, cursing in the name of Christ. It's, It's even a societally acceptable way to curse. Um, this has not happened to the name of any other religious figure. No other name has become a curse word. People don't say all of this or all of that as, as a curse, or Buddha this or Buddha that. And it amazes me that I hear this from people of all backgrounds. Not only from people who grew up in America, a predominantly Christian country, people with a Christian background, but also from people who have absolutely no background in Christianity or or little knowledge of the Christian religion. Immigrants who grew up Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim, they too curse the name of Jesus. And and that kind of baffles me. It's, It's only the name of Jesus which has been relegated to the status of being an acceptable curse word. And the only explanation that I come up, can come up for it is it, that it's the work of Satan. He rules the people of this world, and so he wants to denigrate the name of Jesus. And this is one way he does so. He wants to tear down the name of Jesus. He wants to humiliate the name of Jesus, take it down from the exalted position that it should have. So you have people everywhere in, in really possibly every you know country in the world at least uh you know that i've traveled to they ha- you have them cursing in the name of jesus unfortunately and yet the irony is that though it's the case that no one will bat an eye if you curse using the name of jesus if you happen to bring up the name of jesus in a serious way and mention say you know, that Jesus is your Lord, or Jesus is your Savior, or Jesus is someone who's changed your life. If you mention the name of Jesus in a way that doesn't curse him, but rather honors him, well, it kills the conversation. It empties the room. You know, it thickens the air. Things get all tense. There's an aura 
in the room of, you know, how could you possibly say such a thing? You know, how dare you talk about Jesus? You know, we're at work. How, how can you, you know, uh, say that you honor Jesus? And this isn't the case for any other leader or founder of another religion. You can ask people, you know, anywhere at the workplace, you know, in, in mixed society or whatever. You can say, hey, what do you think of Buddha? Or, you know, or what do you think of Muhammad or, or Confucius or whatever? But if you ask the question, what do you think of Jesus? Well, things get tense. People are uncomfortable when they hear the name of Jesus in a serious context. So if you curse in the name of Jesus, well, that's all and good and socially accepted. But if you honor the name of Jesus, just the mention of his name makes people uncomfortable. You know, they start to squirm. They think, well, should I report this guy to HR? You know, he mentioned the name of Jesus. How, how dare he? I can curse Jesus, but how dare he honor the name of Jesus? And, and why would this be? There's no other name that has that effect on people. A name that literally causes people to squirm at the mention of, of it. Well, it's because there's power in the name of Jesus. It's just as Paul says, God has given Jesus the name that is above every name. Just the mention of his name reaches people to the core of their being. They're uncomfortable at the serious mention of his name because the spirit within them convicts them. It's a warning to them by their spirit that at some point they will need to make a decision about Jesus. That's the power of the name of Jesus. And I consider it a proof of the truth of what Paul says here, that Jesus has the name that is above every name, and there will come a time when everyone will acknowledge that fact. Everyone will come to a place where they acknowledge that the name of Jesus is above every name. That's what Paul tells us next in verses 10 and 11. Quote, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, unquote. Paul is actually referencing here a prophecy from the Old Testament about Christ, found in Isaiah 45. Let's look at Isaiah 45, verses 22 through 24. Here's what it says. Quote, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. They will all say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame." Unquote. Uh, this is referencing the Messiah in the Old Testament, of course, referencing Christ. Now, I like the kind of range of worship to Christ depicted here in the phrases, every knee will bow, every tongue confess or acknowledge. Bowing the knee is to pay physical homage to Christ. Confessing with the tongue is to pay verbal homage to Christ as Lord. We at times bow the knee to Christ in prayer. In doing so, 
We are paying physical homage to Christ, acknowledging with our body that Christ is Lord. And that really, it, it, it's a privilege to come before him in prayer. We tend to, I think, bow the knee to Christ in prayer at times when we most need our prayers answered, most need the power of Christ working on our behalf. And that's fine. Now, Paul is pointing out the importance and the significance of also verbally confessing Christ. It's important to verbally acknowledge that Christ is Lord, to pay verbal homage to Christ, confessing Christ out loud, saying the words, actually saying those words, Jesus Christ is my Lord. Paul elsewhere spoke of the importance of acknowledging Christ as Lord verbally. Here's what he said in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Quote, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved." Unquote. So, Paul here is indicating that to declare Christ as Lord out loud with your mouth is important to your salvation. Confessing Christ as Lord with your mouth, your own words, is kind of a demarcation line between being a believer and a non-believer. There is an importance to confessing Jesus as Lord and saying these words out loud so that others can hear. The Bible attaches an importance to that. And we may note here for the Philippians to do such a thing was quite significant. To say out loud that Christ was their Lord was a significant and possibly dangerous thing to do because for Romans, Caesar is Lord. Caesar was expected to be Lord. You were expected to acknowledge Caesar as Lord, not Christ. So we really have it easy in the time that we live, most of us and who live in free countries. We can say those words, Christ is Lord, without too many repercussions. And so back in the book of Philippians, Paul said that every tongue will confess Christ is Lord. And then in Romans, he indicates that all believers here on earth will have done the same thing. And in fact, we Christians should all get a head start, so to speak, here on earth with, you know, the bowing our knee, bowing our knees to Christ part and the acknowledging with our tongues part, you know, that Christ is Lord. In fact, one can see these two activities as symbolic in a way as to how we should pay homage to Christ even as we live our lives on earth, bowing our knees, confessing with our tongues, with actions and with words, worshiping Christ with our bodies in some way through bodily service, and glorifying Christ with our tongues by speaking the truth of the gospel to others. We've spoken quite a bit in these studies about serving God with our bodies. The subject seems to have naturally come up quite a bit in these studies. Let me focus for a few minutes on glorifying God with our tongues, with our mouths, with our speech. First, part of the verbal aspect of paying homage to Christ, I think, here on earth, is just to acknowledge Christ in some way, verbally, in our day-to-day -day lives. Your friends, your colleagues at work, people whom you spend time with, they should all know that you're a Christian. You should be identified as a Christian. They should know that you attend church regularly. 
And the way they usually find that out is that your Christianity should be naturally part of your speech. Perhaps, you know, you mention when they ask, hey, what did you do this weekend? You say, hey, well, you know, I did some chores on Saturday, Sunday. Of course, I went to church and, you know, or, or mention some service for the Lord that you did. Perhaps when they speak of some problem or issue in their lives, you know, tell them that you'll pray for them. These are things that we should say in our day-to-day lives around the people around us, not, not just around when we're around Christians or your brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, we shouldn't censor Christ out of our speech when we're out in the world, so to speak. Uh, when we casually mention our faith or something about our service in our day-to-day lives, I think this is an important part of confessing with our mouth that Christ is Lord, as Paul said. And, and this is really important because there's often an important consequence to doing this. You know, if it's well known among your friends, your neighbors, your colleagues at work that you are a Christian and that you take your faith seriously, then when they find themselves in a crisis in their lives, they'll come to you for advice. They'll find themselves in a situation, uh, you know, where they don't know who to turn to, you know, or where to turn, and they'll come to you because they know that you have a relationship with God. You know, they think you have, you know, have a fast track connection with God or something. So they'll come to you. So bowing our knees and confessing with our tongues, serving Christ with bodily actions and, uh, you know, verbally in our day-to-day lives is an important thing. Moving on, back to verses 10 and 11, the bowing of the knees and the acknowledgement of Christ as Lord will be literally universal. As Paul points out, every knee, every tongue, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This will be a universal activity by all sentient beings, all reasoning beings, angels, demons, the living, the dead, those in heaven, those on earth. All will be brought to a place of acknowledgement of Christ as Lord. For many, though, sadly, it will be a forced homage. This is indicated by the fact that those under the earth will also pay homage. Those under the earth is representative of those in Hades or hell or Sheol, whatever you want to call it, including both condemned humans and fallen angels. Trust me, you don't want to be in the category of those who are involuntarily paying homage to Christ. It's much better to be among those here on earth who pay homage to Christ voluntarily in order that we don't find ourselves, quote-unquote, under the earth. But nevertheless, even those under the earth will acknowledge Christ as the universal Lord of all, will bow to Christ's sovereign will, will be subject to Christ's all-powerful control. And this will all be done to the glory of God the Father, as Paul says. The exaltation of Christ glorifies God. 
We know this because Christ was raised from the dead. The resurrection of Christ was a demonstration by God that Christ was who he said he was, that Christ is who the Bible says he is, that Christ is the Son of God who deserves all glory and honor. The resurrection of Christ was especially important because of the extreme humility that Christ showed while he walked the earth. Because Christ lived life on earth humbly, because he chose to be humble as he walked the earth, as Pope points out in the first part of his hymn to Christ, then it was all the more important that God exalt Christ in a dramatic and visible way, especially given the deep, deep humiliation that Christ experienced on the cross, dying the way that he did. So God raised Christ from the dead, and more than that, after his resurrection, Christ appeared in person as the raised Christ to many, many people. And it was important that people be witnesses to the raised Christ because God exalted Christ by raising him from the dead. And there is no doubt that there were many witnesses to Christ after his resurrection. This fact is testified to by the blood of the martyred apostles who, each and every one of them, proclaimed to their dying day that they saw and spoke to and touched the living Christ. So God proclaimed Christ to be his son by raising him from the dead. And so for us to bow the knee to Christ and to proclaim Jesus as Lord is a way to glorify God. Such homage to Christ is to the glory of God the Father, as Paul states. This ends the magnificent hymn of Paul's, which details the expansive journey that Christ took from his exalted place in heaven, choosing for our sakes to humble himself and appear as a man, and even as a man humbling himself even to, both to the point of dying for us, and even in his death humbling himself even more by dying the lowest form of death on the cross. And then, because of this, God exalted him to the highest place. And let's not forget Paul's purpose in writing this hymn, as stated back in verse 3 through 5 of this chapter. Let's read again Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5. Quote, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus." Unquote. Christ went to great lengths to humble himself and to serve others. And so to prove that he is our Lord, we need to do the same. Go overboard in humility. Be extreme in service to others. And whatever honor or praise that we deserve for anything that we have done, let that come on the other side. Don't expect to find it in this life. Let God be the one who lifts you up. This is the attitude of Christ, the mindset of Christ, which we need to imitate. We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, dot com. 
or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling, and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling. All rights reserved. Until we meet again, live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all your endeavors. Amen.